Hey everyone, Luke here. Earlier this week, we received the disappointing news that Bernie Sanders was suspending his campaign for president. It's as yet unclear why Bernie chose precisely this moment to bow out, but I assume the fiasco in Wisconsin, where people were sent to vote despite the risk to public health, and Joe Biden's refusal to debate him again had a lot to do with it. It's basically impossible to campaign or get out the vote under these circumstances, and the DNC was clearly determined to shutter the race. It's upsetting to say the least, given how close Bernie came this time. For a few blissful weeks earlier this year, it really did feel like we were on the cusp of something transformative and remarkable. But alas. We've been trying to get extra content for you guys, as I know we're all stuck at home, and I thought this was as good a time as any to talk to Carl Baer, who I've wanted to have on the show for some time. Carl is a sharp political analyst and a talented writer, and the two of us spent about 40 minutes discussing the Bernie campaign and its unfortunate outcome. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Lastly, while I have you here, we've made a running joke out of being bad at promoting the show, but if I can, can I ask you all to rate the podcast on your podcast app and leave a one-sentence review, hopefully a positive one, but don't feel bound. It takes 20 to 30 seconds, and we'll do a lot to make sure more people will find out about the show. Cheers. Anyway, I think that's enough housekeeping, so without further ado, here's my conversation with Carl Bayer. Enjoy. So, Carl, welcome to Michael and Us. I'd hope to cover a number of different topics today, uh, but from this morning's news, uh, I suspect there's one thing uh, and one thing alone on both of our minds and um, all of our listeners' minds, and that's Bernie Sanders' suspension of his presidential campaign. But before we get into that, I think it does make some sense to introduce you to those among our listeners who aren't familiar with your work. I think even for those that are, I suspect many, you know, might know you as a top tier left Twitter poster, and they may not know that you're also an excellent writer and a commentator with a, a blog of your own. So why don't you, uh, why don't we begin by you telling us a bit about, you know, yourself and, and the work you do? Yeah, well, I just think of myself as a blogger, first and foremost, I don't really work in media or anything like that. But I've been blogging for uh, more than 20 years now, really had a very old blog back in 1999, and I've been doing it ever since. And then occasionally some of my stuff gets cross-posted on Jacobin and stuff like that. But I just write about socialism, and then usually whenever elections come around, I end up writing a bit about polling and demographics and stuff like that. But those seem to be sort of the two major focuses I've fallen in on recent years, socialism and uh, elections, that sort of thing. So uh, I had no idea that you'd been blogging for that long. Yep. I mean, back in the 1990s, that's kind of the 1.0 blog era. So that actually makes you a contemporary of some of the most distinguished, uh, you know, uh, bloggers oh, yeah. out there, uh, titans like you know Marcos Melitsis and uh, you know the the Netroots gang who. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Settle uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we we did a we did a whole episode on those guys uh, a while back. Um, there's a there's a documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. I think it's just called Blogging Wars, and it, it's from 2004, and it's all about. You know, it's back when the Netroots guys were thought of as this, you know, this insurgent force within, you know, American liberalism because they were rallying around. Um, God, I'm forgetting his name now. Let Ned Lamont, who yeah. they successfully primaried Joe Lieberman, who just ran as an independent and beat them in the general anyway. But uh, yeah, blogging. Uh, I was on. I was in the blogging trenches myself a bit later than that. I used to 
Um, even though I'm in Canada, I would hit up right wing blogs. There was one called Snark Bait, I, and I used to uh, I used to bait them with sort of like my Michael Moore politics that I had in 2004, um, and uh, and so that was fun. But speaking of blogging, you know, I've spent my day writing uh, a kind of post mortem for the Bernie campaign, mm-hmm. um, a mix of thought and emotion, uh, really. Um, and you know, I see you've done the same with yep. a post on your blog called "2020 Will Be the Stay at Home Election." And and in, in that, you deal, as I did in my piece, with I think what is really the main question before us, which is uh, why Bernie lost. I want to talk about that in detail, but. Uh, I think it makes sense to ask uh, the, to, you know, to uh, proceed thought with emotion uh, here. So, I mean, how are you feeling about this? Because I know how I'm feeling. I've I've got to be honest. I mean, at one level, of course, there's disappointment. Um, but for one thing, this has been a long time coming, right? Uh, the writing was yeah. on the wall shortly after South Carolina. And... Uh, personally, I never thought he had it in the bag. There were a few times I was talking about this online where I thought that the media had buried Joe Biden way too soon. Um, and so there was about a month there where everybody was presently surprised by Bernie's performance, but I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. So that's kind of my immediate impression. But, you know, honestly, like, I've the first president who I campaigned for was Ralph Nader, and he was also the second president I campaigned for. And then I worked on Mike Gravel's campaign briefly, uh, did the sort of college campaign at my university. I've never had a candidate who I fully supported uh, who won, and I think that that's the story for a lot of socialists. So it doesn't hit me as hard, I think, as it does, like, you know, you see a lot of uh, Democrats in the primary who, when their candidate loses, it's absolutely apocalyptic for them. And it's because a lot of them have this very reasonable and serious expectation that they could win it all. For someone like me, it always just kind of feels like a long shot and you do whatever you can but I guess I'm just instinctively pessimistic about elections anyway. So I'm doing okay, I think, honestly. <laughs> well, I suppose, you know, what you're describing is kind of the double-edged sword of being a committed socialist, because on the one hand, you know, you 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 lose a lot of the time. Yep. You lose more times than you win. But on the other hand, um, you actually have an identity and a theory of politics and a bunch of other stuff to fall back on. Uh, when you do lose, and for a lot of, I don't know, mainstream Democrats, kind of more normie-minded Democratic voters, you know, they develop these um, these incredibly tight but superficial emotional attachments to these candidates that, in practice, you know, many of them don't really have more than a few weeks when they're publicly visible. You know, they yeah. they might they have a media cycle sometime in you know, like for, I mean, if you're you know, if you're Pete, you know, if a Pete Buttigieg supporter or something or a Harris supporter, you know, you get one brief media cycle. And then if you're super lucky, you get, you know, a second place primary finish or two. And then, you know, it's uh, it's done unless your candidate squeaks through. And um, I guess that, uh, you know, that accounts for the, these kind of 
Um, I don't know, incredibly, uh, I, you know, when Elizabeth Warren dropped out, there was all, you know, there was all this uh, emotion and stuff, even though she hadn't really ever, it seemed had a, I mean, apart from a couple weeks in October, it didn't really seem like she ever had a chance to win. Part of it is it does come, this attachment to politicians in the elections does come from a kind of understandable place where, you know, this is the one opportunity that we really have in U.S. politics to really exercise, or at least it feels like we are exercising power in these campaigns. It's the closest that we ever come, and that's not to say that we're getting all that close. But for a lot of people, this is your opportunity. So it's kind of understandable that they get really invested in the process and they have these very strong emotions when uh, it doesn't work out. Um, But I guess that's the other side of being a socialist is, you know, it's a full time job. It's not something that you just start doing every four years. Uh, The work continues. So. I, I just have not had the same kind of super emotional uh, reaction that a lot of people have. I will say I do feel bad for a lot of, especially the younger Sanders supporters. This is their first election, um, the first time that they've really tasted this kind of disappointment. I also, you know, feel bad for a lot of the Sanders staffers who clearly put so much of themselves into this and had a lot uh, riding on it, not just politically, but personally, you know, I'm thinking about questions like, how are some of these people going to get healthcare now in the middle of the pandemic? Um, Just simple things like that. So I guess, in a sense, I'm more worried about them. I'm more worried about how a lot of other Sanders supporters are reacting than I am about myself. Yeah, I, I feel very much the same way. And, you know, it's it's remarkably similar to what I felt after the UK election in December, yeah. um, about which I was also tremendously disappointed. I found my thoughts um, the following day really drifting to, you know, younger socialists, I mean, many of whom will have really just embraced socialism as an identity um, yeah. you know, very, very recently. Um, when I was, uh, I, I was actually in the United States I mean, it was just over a month ago. It certainly feels a lot longer than that today. But um, I touched down in Massachusetts, I think February the 28th, 29th, something like that, and took a cab over to Boston Common where Bernie was having a rally. And I think it was the first time, um, you know, it was was actually the day before my 31st birthday. And it was the first time that I was really registering, I guess, both my own age on the one hand, but also just how young, uh, you know, when we talk about Bernie, uh, Bernie supporters being youth and his campaign being youth driven, you know, I realized, God, a lot of these kids are, you know, 16, 17, 18. And this is the first time they've ever done this. Um, and so that it's also makes it the first time they've ever experienced a defeat as bitter as this one. And, you know, I hope that they all stick around because as you said, it's, it's a job. It's not something that you, uh, you know, you, you pick up uh, for, you know, a few months every four years and then, and then uh, set down. Um, yeah. But so let's, let's get into the, let's get, let's get into your piece here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and let's, let's talk about the meat of the question why Bernie lost. My my take actually is uh, that I, just quickly, the one that I wrote in a piece for Jacobin that should be out later today, uh, is that this is actually pretty simple. You know, I think there are going to be a lot of, um, 
you know, in the last few weeks, there have already been a lot of people offering these kind of postmortems where it seems to me uh, it's a lot of people litigating their personal grievances with, with yes. the left, with yeah. electoral electoralism. Um, I mean, in some cases, just the dumbest things imaginable, like the sort of a brigade of pundits who think that Chapo Trap House is is responsible or or, yeah. or something like that, um, you know. But uh, my read on this is it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I think that you know if you look at these exit polls, um, you know, around Medicare for all, you know, where it, it in state after state there's majority support in South Carolina, a state that Joe Biden won overwhelmingly and ultimately served as the kind of jumping off point for the resurrection of his you know, zombie campaign, um, you yeah. know, a majority of South Carolina, uh, South Carolina and Democratic voters said they favored a complete overhaul of the U.S. economic system. But unfortunately, uh, you know, people don't always vote their ideological preferences. And in a context where, you know, this meta debate about electability uh, and who can beat Donald Trump is predominant, that became, it seems to me, the fulcrum of the election. And when you have cable news in particular telling millions of older voters that Joe Biden is the safe choice. And when you have, you know, a decade or more of Democrats being conditioned to think like pundits um, yep. where they're not supposed to vote you know, for what they want, they're supposed to vote for some abstract idea of what they think their neighbor wants or what they're what. Nate Silver tells them their, their neighbor wants or whatever, you know, yeah. uh, once once there was this consolidation around Biden, that was the ball game. I mean, do you do you basically agree with that? What are what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I think there's there's a proximate cause and underlying cause to why Sanders lost. And the proximate cause here is exactly what you've said, uh, which is that voters decided he was not electable against Donald Trump. And there are all kinds of reasons why they decided that. Uh, I think, you know, you can place some blame on the Sanders campaign itself for not more forcefully making the case against Joe Biden's electability, which I think is very credible. And we know that Bernie Sanders himself did not want to make that case. But ultimately, you just had these massive corporate media institutions uh, who were amplifying this received wisdom throughout the campaign that the guy who calls himself a socialist is an election risk and, you know, Biden is the safe bet. And ultimately, that's what voters care about, because Democratic primary voters, at least, their motivation is always to defeat the Republican. That's their priority. And if you make an electability case saying that one guy can do it and another one can't, then the guy who can't is going to lose. That's all there is to it. But, you know, within this analysis, we see what the underlying cause is. And this is what I talk about in my blog post, too, which is that you have just decades and decades of conditioning the public to think about politics and think about who is electable in a certain way to teach them that we're a center right nation, that socialist politics are just completely anathema to vo most voters, that sort of thing. Uh, this has been going on for decades. Uh, it's insurmountable, at least at the moment. It's I don't know how you get past it. And, uh, 
you know, that plus uh, the immediate media, you know, circling, forming the big shield wall around Joe Biden and giving him all of that earned media after South Carolina, uh, I don't know how you can get past it. You can talk about a lot of mistakes that Sanders made, but ultimately, I don't see anything that he could have done that was going to get him uh, around that. Joe Biden began the race polling at about 30%. That's where he stayed for most of the race. That was clearly his floor, except for that little you know, bump at the end, which I think was mostly artificial. Uh, or drop at the end. Um, so from there, he only needed to get 20% to get a majority. And once you have the consolidation of the anti-Sanders vote and the electability voters, that gets you over 50 easily. Nothing Sanders can do about that. Yeah, you know, it's incredible that how, you know, the extent to which the roots of this are both um, really just events of the past few weeks, but also events that have been going on for for decades and decades. I mean, something that I think is impossible to ignore when we look at the demographic patterns in the voting, you know, where younger voters overwhelmingly went for Sanders and people over 50, you know, pretty overwhelmingly, uh, you know, favored Biden, favored the more conservative choices uh, while uh, while there were while there was a bigger field. Something that's very hard to overlook is just how the experience of, um, you know, a particular generation that kind of lived through the 1960s or, or you know, kind of experienced them in, in the rearview mirror um, and then saw, you know, the rise of Nixonism and then the rise of Reaganism and then the kind of uh, reshaping of the Democratic Party in the 1990s. You know, those experiences, I think, collectively have really shaken a lot of people's faith, even kind of well-meaning and, you know, somewhat progressively minded people's faith in the idea that progress of any kind is... Uh, is impossible. Um, there was a, an astonishing piece that I wrote a pretty scathing takedown of. Um, it must have been last summer, perhaps um, a bit before that, by Eric Alterman in The Nation that I think was called The Liberal Case Against Bernie Sanders. It might have even been called The Socialist Case Against Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I, I, might, I might not be remembering, but what was extraordinary about the piece, I mean, it's only, it was only about 700 words, is that Alterman, um, you know, who's been with The Nation, I think, since the 1980s, it, yeah. You know, he he goes through all this stuff that he says he agrees with. I mean, it's the classic move of sort of ideological alignment, but ultimate rejection. And um, one of the most extraordinary uh, sort of moves in the piece is that he says he voted for Bernie in the New York primary in 2016. And then he says, I did so not because I thought that he would win, but because I wanted to commend him for his principled uh, criticism of Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. And then a few paragraphs later, one of the things he lists in, uh, you know, these are the these are the postures that will make Bernie Sanders unelectable is his criticism of, of Israel. Yeah. So so yeah. here you have here you have this guy saying, uh, like, basically admitting that he's afraid of his own shadow that he has he states these ideological preferences and then he says but here's why we actually can't we can't be so indulgent as to actually you know well indulge um any of these things and i think back to that a lot i mean he it's a it's a particularly cynical case that he was making but i think there's a much more earnest one that a lot of kind of rank and uh rank and file liberal voters feel as well just in that they don't think uh that the things they want are even possible and and that's how they've been conditioned to think it's 
it's that and i do want to say on top of that another part of the problem is you know so the sort of sanders path to victory his theory of how he was going to win this was that he was going to be able to mobilize uh non-voters people who don't turn out uh you know particularly sort of poor and working class voters who aren't as politically engaged um he failed at that and I think that sort of begs the obvious question, okay, well, why didn't these people turn out? And you can say, uh, well, you know, Sanders should have done more and he should have run on this policy and he should have spun his platform this way and used this rhetoric and all of that. And that's going to be the kind of popular type of critique that we're going to see in the coming weeks. But, you know, the bottom line is that we are dealing with a completely disempowered and demobilized electorate, especially among uh, poor and working class Americans who just don't feel like politics can ever do anything good for them. You know, they're very pessimistic about Sanders' chances and it rightly so because the government hasn't been able to do much for them um and there are obvious reasons for that the you know republican party pushing this anti-government ideology with which neoliberals have been completely okay going along with people just don't have faith in the government's ability to make their lives better and to overcome these problems and that becomes a real uh, obstacle if you're a democratic socialist running on the ability of the state to overcome capitalism in these different ways something else i'd like to talk about you know one of the other i think uh or one of the one of the one of the kind of chimeras of this election cycle was the idea that there was a progressive lane um, and that Bernie him Bernie wasn't alone the kind of standard bearer for yeah. you know the left and the Democratic Party um, and that you know narrative was obviously very popular in some you know media circles places that were more favorable to Elizabeth Warren and it became increasingly ridiculous as her campaign pivoted you know which I think started in January to you know both having a more confrontational posture towards Bernie, uh, much more confrontational than it had towards really any of the other campaigns besides Michael Bloomberg's. Yeah. Um, but but also, I mean, Warren, her, she shifted her focus. I mean, she wasn't really running on, you know, her kind of anti-corruption sort of small p populist message that that she'd been championing uh, the previous summer. So, I mean, what do you make of that that whole, uh, I mean, this notion that there, you know, of a progressive lane and, and, I mean, to what extent do you think there was anything like that that could have consolidated behind Bernie? So the Warren campaign and sort of the discourse around it was truly obnoxious, especially if you're a socialist and you're trying to frame the election in a certain way and get people to think about politics in a certain way, a socialist way. And then you have this person who says she's capitalist to her bones come in and who sells herself as somebody who can cooperate with the democratic establishment and just completely undermining all of the sort of messaging that socialists at least wanted to advance in this election. So there is something that was sort of ideologically noxious about her, but 
practically speaking, I think that her impact on this election was extremely overhyped from the start. I wrote about this a bit, talked about uh, Warren's collapsing base. But if you look, one trend that seems clear is so er, at at her peak, she captured about 6% of voters who said that their second choice was Sanders. You know, that itself, that's a bit, but it's not enough for him to catch up to Biden. It's not enough to win the election. And then if you look at how her support deteriorated, uh, her supporters from her second choice supporter, Sanders, left a bit. But you have this hardcore of about 3% of Democrats who said, uh, yeah, I like Bernie, but I support Elizabeth Warren. And I think there's real reason to believe that they were never going to be Sanders voters, that they were never going to throw their weight behind him. You know, so you have 3% who really weren't ever gettable. You have 3% who I think were gettable and who Sanders in the end got. I don't think that 3% is a election turning margin. You can make arguments that, you know, so she definitely stole some of Bernie's momentum in a sense. Uh, he wasn't able to consolidate certain factions on the left, especially like sort of in left NGO land and left media land and stuff like that, that you would expect him to have been able to get. And that would have been assets like, you know, um, the working families parties, they would have been a- assets knocking on doors uh, Same with a bunch of the other groups that inevitably backed Warren. You can say that she hurt him in that way, and I think that's fair. But ultimately, I think that a lot of this Warren discourse was driven by a media class that really sympathizes with her for class reasons. They like her wonkishness. They like her sort of class signaling as the wine track candidate and all of that. But if we're actually sort of doing a hard-nosed analysis of her impact on the campaign, like, I don't think it was really that much bigger than Mayor Pete's impact or Bloomberg's. You had a whole group of Democrats there, and their major function was to uh, split the vote and prevent Bernie from consolidating an anti-Biden vote, which is what he needed to do. All of these other Democrats, you know, pitched in on that a bit, and that was the effect that all of them had. Warren was one of them, but her unique impact was relatively marginal, I think. It it is an extraordinary example. You know, I mean, a a lot of these kind of also ran Democrats, uh, not just Elizabeth Warren. I mean, Kamala Harris, Bid O'Rourke, Mayor Pete, you know, Klobuchar, um, you know, all of them are examples of you know, just how kind of disproportionate media coverage is as a direct consequence of, you know, the general social insularity of the media and kind of its, its you know, PM, generally PMC yeah. nature. I mean, uh, you, ha- you have a candidate who is the overwhelming preference of a lot of the people who, you know, are professional pundits, who, who cover politics, who work in kind of, as you said, like left you know, NGO world, the kind of nonprofit sector, that sort of thing, yeah. um, but who in practice had 
you know, as it turned out, the narrowest social base imaginable, I mean, uh, who performed uh, less well in primaries, although I guess she she ultimately got more delegates than, you know, Mayor Pete. But I mean, she came third in her home state. Uh, I think third was her best result anywhere. I don't think yeah. she even came second nope. in a single state. Nope. Um, and that is, I mean, that is just an extraordinary phenomenon. And I mean, not that this is something our listeners on this show need to hear, but, you know, it's yet another example of just how when you read the news, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, selection of, of, of the spectrum of things that you see that goes on before you've had a chance to read anything. And that is especially true of uh, presidential primary politics. Yeah, this this performance should kill any chance that she has of running for president in four years. It was just absolutely embarrassing I'm pretty sure that she got fourth place finishes in the primaries more often than third place finishes. I was going through them yesterday and, uh, you know, she she was in second place for maybe a grand total of about two and a half months uh, before she sunk again. And that was it. She spent most of the time with this very small base that she struggled to expand especially after September had this very adversarial relationship a lot of times with even the media, even a media that wanted to like her and wanted to support her. She just couldn't win them over. And she would complain about it and say that, oh, you know, the media is erasing our campaign. Um, They weren't. But if she runs again in four years, it's going to be these exact same problems. And I'm telling you, she lucked out this time because there wasn't much of an alternative among sort of right-wing Democrats. It was her or Biden. So, of course, a lot of people are going to run with her. But in four years, if you get a just even reasonably charismatic candidate, probably not a white man, um, someone who checks all of the usual boxes of what Democrats want in their candidate, she's not going to have a chance against them. So, you know, she should be a lot more worried about getting reelected in Massachusetts at this point than she should be with building this Warren Democrats organization as kind of a springboard to 2024. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary the damage she did with her credibility. I mean, even on, you know, even in circles on the left who at least thought that she did have some kind of clear commitments to certain things and was sort of a, you know, somewhat principled left liberal, you know, like a Paul Wellstone type figure or something like that. I mean, she uh, and actually, uh, you know, my ultimate read on her campaign Weirdly enough, as I think it was a vindication of everything that that Bernie Sanders and his movement have been trying to do since 2016, which, you know, I mean, because Warren's basic pitch and I think what she thought her path to victory was, was, well, you'll offer you offer the left populist message. You you kind of um, at least in some degree, you you challenge and you name corporate interests as malefactors. Um, But you do it and you do all of that in a language that professional part of the democratic coalition and the kind of you know the institutions that make up the democratic apparatus are going to be more comfortable with um you know and you kind of lean into some of the things like some of the aesthetic signifiers and the gestures that a candidate like hillary clinton had even though warren's politics are are obviously different from hers you know so that was supposed to be was supposed to be a perfect compromise that was going to help her really lock down both flanks and the fact that you know it not only failed but it 
that it didn't work at all. Yeah. And that as soon as uh, as soon as Bernie's surge started in January, the fact that Elizabeth Warren, you know, basically defaulted to kind of garden variety centrist messaging on a whole bunch of stuff. I, I really think that's a lesson that the people should take to take to heart about ever trying to do this with a sort of approach that doesn't antagonize the structures of the Democratic Party, you know, and the media. There were still, as I mentioned at one point online, there were a whole lot of uh, people who were saying things like, uh, you know, if Warren doesn't win her first primary, she should drop out. Uh, if she doesn't win the third one, she should drop out. If she is running behind by Super Tuesday, she should drop out. Over and over again, sort of moving the goalposts around when she should drop out. And, you know, these were the same people who pushed this whole non-aggression pact theory and this idea that we are going to be able to combine delegates and do crazy stuff like that. And there was never really a reckoning for these people. They haven't taken responsibility for this argument that they've made. I, I can't think of anyone who made the unity pact argument who, after the Warren and Sanders campaign had their falling out, said, okay, yeah, well, this perhaps this wasn't a good idea after all. It was never going to work. You never had this kind of reckoning. And... In a sense, you know, I don't really care what happens to individual people who took dumb positions in the primaries and stuff like that. It's not personal in that sense. But broadly, politically, I think that socialists in particular need to be more attuned moving forward for this sort of demographic of unreliable ally who pitches themselves as progressives, uh, who will build this kind of alliance with centrist Democrats, who will work with Joe Biden to get things done, uh, and who tries to lure socialists over in that direction too. Even among modern socialists, there's this uh, real revulsion towards anything that sounds like sectarianism or drawing hard lines or anything like that. But I think that this primary showed us anything. It's that we've got to toughen up a bit because if we don't, we're just going to get played time and time again. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly with you there. I'd also, I want to talk about the way you conclude post. And I think this will be a good kind of last segment of the discussion. The way you conclude your post today, I'm going to read here. Um, you write, when Hillary Clinton lost four years ago, I wrote that the, tw the 2016 was the apathy election. Incredibly, the Democratic establishment has chosen to repeat its mistake. It has overcome Bernie Sanders and the movement he inspired and set in his place a consummate next in line figurehead for the neoliberal plutocracy. No one will fight for this man. No one will risk their lives for this man. In 2020, faced with a raging pandemic on one hand and the hopeless politics of the Democratic Party on the other, voters will once more decide wisely to stay home. Yep. Um, so, I mean, in the kind of paragraphs that precede this, uh, you know, you talk about the precedent Biden has set by, you know, not opposing uh, or not calling for the contest in Wisconsin yesterday to be uh, suspended. I mean, yeah. do, do you think that that posture, I mean, in addition to what you say in the uh, in what I just read, I mean, do you think that that posture is going to have consequences in the general election? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, it, the, the timing of this pandemic is going to be horrible because 
everything I've read about it at this point talks about a second wave building up uh, in the fall, right around the time when Joe Biden needs to really start mobilizing voters and drumming up the enthusiasm and trying to correct this big glaring weakness of his campaign. And I just don't see how he does it. He doesn't even have the enthusiasm of Clinton's base, which, you know, say what you will about them. They were extremely attached to her personally, and a lot of them were very invested in the idea of electing our first woman president. So she did have a certain core of enthusiasm on her side. I don't see how Biden gets us over the finish line. You know, this is a incumbent presidency uh, in the middle of a crisis, and Biden's numbers have been eroding throughout this campaign. And you know, if you're someone like me, I'm on Medicaid these days. I don't have a job right now, so I'm very worried about my finances. <laughs> I'm not going to walk into a polling booth and vote for Joe Biden. I'm terrified of what will happen. I don't want to go to the hospital or be bankrupted or die because I can't get uh, treatment. Not for him. You know, if if Bernie, if Bernie Sanders were the candidate on the ballot, it might be a different story because in that case, you're actually looking at a way out. You're looking at something like Medicare for all. You're looking at somebody who is going to fight for the financial security of people who are just being destroyed by this pandemic. Um, and in a case like that, it might make sense. And, you know, you look at the polling and you see how so many people, we talked about how people didn't see Sanders as electable, but they did say they supported his ideas. They did say that they backed his policies. You know, that is how you inspire people at the end to turn out. And I think that this whole electability farce was really going to reveal itself if we somehow did get Sanders in, because suddenly what you would have is you would have election with a very fired up Sanders base that would do whatever it takes to put him in office. Plus, you would just have the reflexive like anti-Trump Democrats who will also do whatever it takes to get him out of office. And so you have these two very large groups backing Sanders. And then you know, you would just have sort of the regular turnout on top of that of Democrats who always come out and vote for Democrats no matter what. I think that a Sanders nomination would have completely buried this electability rhetoric, but it's still with us. And what this means is that we are staring down the barrel of another low turnout election. Um, Biden is not going to be able to bring out these voters. And one of the real tasks of socialists at this point is going to be to stress that it was the Democrats that made this happen. This isn't on the people who stay home and who don't go out. At some point, the Democrats have to take responsibility for uh, nominating candidates that people actually want to vote for. If they can never do that, then there's something wrong that's deeper than just voters being selfish or privileged or strategically inept or whatever you want to say about people who stay home. Yeah, and I mean that, you know, that narrative, which obviously was very prevalent after 2016, where, 
you know, the, the blame for this catastrophic, you know, the Democratic Party losing an unlosable election, the yeah. blame was outsourced to, you know, a handful of people in New York State that voted for Jill Stein or people that stayed home or whatever. And, I mean, of course, it completely defies the reality of who most non-voters actually are or who most people who don't vote, you know, who might vote Democrat and don't, uh, who they are. I mean, they tend to be much lower income, very often people of color. Um, the stereotype is sort of privileged college kids that, you know, won't vote for the shitty neoliberal Democrat isn't, yeah. isn't really uh, at all accurate. And obviously with the, the caveat that we don't know what's going to happen in the next few months, the events are so fluid. I mean, my feeling is very similar to yours. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see at this point how Joe Biden uh, is going to defeat Donald Trump. I mean, you know, incumbent presidents tend to be harder to beat anyway. The Republican machine is much more confident that it can win this time. It didn't really think it could win last time. You know, it, the Republican coalition, uh, you know, is going to be consolidated behind Trump. Parts of it were basically running, uh, you know, running with Clinton last time. Yeah. Um, Biden himself, I mean, they've basically kept him off the airwaves uh, as much as they can. He seems to have deteriorated just in the last few few weeks. I mean, these clips that come out every time he does appear, or he does one of these kind of you know, Tim and Eric uh, asked <laughs> live streams, you know, um, yeah. it's it's astonishing. And add to that, the media has done a basically a blackout on this sexual assault allegation, but that is going to be litigated whether Democrats like it or not at some point in the future, as is, uh, as are the multiple scandals surrounding Joe Biden's family. You know, it's just very hard to see. And, you know, B Biden will inevitably, given what his instincts have been, his political instincts for, you know, 40 or 50 years have been, he will inevitably pivot to the right. He will run a kind of national unity campaign that takes a lot of Democratic constituencies for granted and tries to win over conservatively minded, uh, you know, suburban voters and things like that. Um, it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be a, a, a terrifying election to watch. But nevertheless, one that will, I'm sure, give us a lot to discuss. So thank you so much for, for joining us on this, uh, you know, depressing day and offering, um, you know, yeah. such thoughtful and, and spirited analysis. Um, really a pleasure to, to speak with you and uh, love, love to have you back again sometime soon. Kathy, I'm lost, I said, though I knew she was sleeping. Cause on the new Jersey turnpike, they've all come.